Life can be stressful, even under normal circumstances. 2020 has challenged even the most difficult times of life. You need stress relief that goes beyond quick fixes. That's Headspace. Headspace is one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research and can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Go to headspace.com slash C-suite for a free one-month trial. Headspace.com slash C-suite. Fake money, fake teachers, fake assets. In 1971, President Richard Nixon took the U.S. dollar off the gold standard, turning the U.S. dollar into fiat money, government money, fake money. In 2008, the world economy crashed when fake assets, fake mortgages, and fake financial experts led us down a path to ruin. Think about this. Why do schools choose not to teach us about money? Why are 78% of all Americans living paycheck to paycheck? Why are students staggering under a trillion dollars in student loan debt? Because a fake world makes the rich richer and the poor and middle class poorer, and that's exactly how the government wants it. The only way to protect yourself is to learn how to separate the real from the fake. Go to richdad.com to get your copy of Fake by Robert Kiyosaki and learn how to spot the manipulation of reality we live with every day. Don't get fooled again. Get your copy of Fake by Robert Kiyosaki at richdad.com. That's richdad.com. This is the Rich Dad Radio Show. The good news and bad news about money. Here's Robert Kiyosaki. Hello and welcome to the Rich Dad Radio Show, the good news and the bad news about money. I'm Kim Kiyosaki and I'm hosting today's show. Robert is actually teaching an event, but not just teaching, he's also participating as a student because we always have to keep learning because things are moving so quickly. And today we have a really special guest and a very important program. So have you ever thought of taking a product, inventing, inventing a product, bringing a product to the market? So we have a guest who has done that many, many, many times. As a matter of fact, she's done it 3,000 times since 2008, and her name is Jules Pieri. She's the co-founder and CEO of The Gromit, and she basically finds great products, great inventors, and sometimes not so great entrepreneurs, but turns people into great entrepreneurs because, as you're going to find out, a lot of people who bring product to market really have no business idea. So she not only finds great products, but she actually helps people get them to market and actually helps build great entrepreneurs. So Jules, Jules Pieri, welcome to the program. Thanks, Kim. Happy to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to have you on the program because, you know, there's all the, the big box stores and all the big consumer companies, but I see you as kind of the champion of the underdog. You're out there for the independent inventor, the independent entrepreneur. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, we launch innovative products from small businesses. Okay, and your company is called The Gromit. What is The Gromit, <laughs> and how did you get started? Well, <laughs> uh, the name itself is, a, is um, actually a piece of hardware. If you think about like I an thought. eyelet on your shoe, that's a grommet or okay. a, a shower ring, you know, shower, shower curtain ring. And I love hardware. I'm an industrial designer, so I just have a... <laughs> kind of geeky affinity for hardware. <laughs> Don't take me into Sephora. Take me in an Ace Hardware. I'm much happier. <laughs> so um, what, what is your background? I, uh, industrial designer was um, my early career, what I trained for. So I did design products directly. And then um, ultimately, I kind of moved over to the business side of 
creativity, if you will, and worked in a couple of startups before this. One of them is called Continuum, which is an innovation consultancy. And one of them competed with LinkedIn, so you never heard of it. It was called Ziggs. Oh. And, uh, and then a bunch of um, big consumer products companies in there, so Hasbro, PlaySchool, uh, Keds, StrideRide, so and some work overseas even. So you've been around product invention for a long time. Yeah, it's. Um, I would say that um, while business is my craft, uh, design is my passion, um, and so I've just always wanted to blend the two. And you have a new book that just came out in April called How We Make Stuff Now, Turn Ideas into Products that Build Successful Businesses, and I have that book, and it really looks like quite the blueprint for somebody from starting from nothing to actually getting the, mar- getting the product to market and then growing the product and growing their business. Yeah, like, um, I have to tell you, I wrote the book because it didn't exist, almost like why I started the business. If I had seen a business like The Gromit, a vibrant place to find innovative products, a community, if I'd seen that, I'd be just steering them on. I would have never started it. Same with the book. There's nothing like it that these entrepreneurs have to figure it out by themselves. And watching and working with 3,000 of them, we pretty much had the playbook. We knew what they do to succeed, and we knew what the pitfalls are, so... Why not put it in one place? So you're, you're kind of like the shark tank. You're kinder, <laughs> gentler. <laughs> you're not the Kevin O'Leary's of the world. <laughs> not so much. No, you know what? Here's the deal. Like we, you know, we have a pretty extreme vetting process because we see 300 products a week and we launch six. And we've launched a bunch that become famous that your listeners would know, like Fitbit or SodaStream, Otterbox, Well Water Bottles. Mrs. Myers, the cleaning products, Banana Grand. So we see these companies when they're nascent, when they're, when they're really tiny. But our vetting process is so extreme. We're only launching um, six of them six a out week. Of, six out of 300. You look at 300 products a week and you pick six. Yes. How? How? Yes. How? How do, you, how do you know what makes a good product? What's going to be a hit? Well, we, because we see so much, we can actually make two really quick preliminary judgments. One is definitive. Is this product well-known? If it's well-known, it wouldn't be a grommet because our community would be disappointed. We want to tell you something new every day. Um, the harder one is, is this product, it's promise. Uh, is it distinctive? Is it doing something new in its space? And that just takes experience, frankly. So of the 300, about 30 a week have that promise and we will get samples we will contact the company they, 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 half of what we see is inbound anyway so the companies are hoping we'll reach out to them and then we'll start engaging testing the product making sure that it delivers and that the company is what it says it is whether it's a it has a unique business model or it's made in the USA or the entrepreneurs underrepresented say a veteran um, we're, we're digging in making sure that whatever we're going to Claim is true, essentially, because we're, we're lending our reputation to these unknown companies. The folks who engage in our community know us, but they, they're hoping that we're going to introduce them to companies that are also trustworthy. Right, right. So if, if I'm listening to this program, I'm sitting out here listening to this program right now, and, and I may have an idea for a product, what are there like two or three key things that you're going to say if you must have this with your product in order to see us, in order to bring it to the grommet? Uh, a couple of things. One is um, it should be just about in production, like you might have done a Kickstarter or an Indiegogo campaign and run one 
production run, like you've done some early manufacturing, but you're ready to start selling for real. Those are those are more like science projects, and you're ready for a business because we're going to bring more demand than you might be ready for otherwise. Um, I would say, in general, stepping back, this has nothing to do with the grommet, but if I were inventing a product, I'd want to know there's a reasonable target market for it. So I would do the homework to see, to scope that market, try to quantify it. It's so much work to do one of these businesses. You want to go after a large population who either has a problem um, that they have to deal with repetitively um, or a situation, something they enjoy doing that this product could enhance. So you don't want to do something that's super, super fringe. An example that would be a lot of parents invent something for something that's a very short moment in time in their child's life and there's probably nothing wrong with the product the product does a good job probably but the need for it's very short it might be a month in the child's development so it's very hard to find customers because nobody's trying to solve a problem that's very short term and you and you talk about that a lot about a product that solves a problem because we talk about that as well so to us, that's yeah. one of the key things. If there's a problem out there and you can find a solution to it and create a product that solves the problem, that could be a home run. Yeah, and I will say, even though I'm saying being very you know sort of cautionary, like make sure there's a market and and don't just talk to your you know, your mother and your neighbor or your brother. Like, do the work and figure out some of the statistics around that population, which is eminently doable. Google Trends, Small Business Administration data. Um, even looking at Amazon can be super helpful. Um, do the work because it's going to be your life. So, you know, save yourself that. But but then I'm going to tell you something opposite. Just because you don't find a product on the market or a service on the market that solves this problem, don't assume that it's a bad idea. Like I, every day in this business, see a business that solves a problem that I never even imagined I had or that anyone would solve. So it sometimes kind of like just, Apple, you know, kind of like Apple. Yeah, exactly. Nobody knew they needed like, a, a, a iPad. <laughs> exactly. That's a great example where, you know, innovation can come from anyone. So I, I do like people to feel confident in, in their own, you know, ability to fill whole that, that in our experience, only 10% of the people we work with have any prior experience in the market where they're going to be like, their professions are, are nothing to do with product most of the time. They're dentists or teachers, and here they are inventing a product. So they're inventing a product not necessarily from their field of professionalism. No, um, it's, it's, it kind of falls in two buckets. Either half of them kind of solve a problem that they understand. They're, they're, you know, they're avid fishermen, say, and they solve a problem. We launched a couple of products this week that are in that bucket. Um, so they do understand the area, but they, you know, their day job is something different. Or there's something about their day job where they see a material or a technology or a business model, and they transport it over to something else. Like they, they, um, you know, might bring. In the case, of, let's say the fishermen one. This, I'm kind of making this up because this isn't the origin story, but they use silicone to hold fishing lures much more tightly and safely in a very compact format. You know, it's possible that the um, that those entrepreneurs saw silicone used in some other application, like holding cosmetics or in a, you know, holding medical instruments in an ER, you know, tools. It, it, like, that's what I mean. You could transfer, like, oh, wow, that's a groovy material. And 
fishing tackle boxes are just open boxes. You know, they just have little slots that, you know, everything just jumbles around. Why couldn't you organize this? And so sometimes it can be something very, very simple that makes a great product. Yeah, absolutely. If it's easy to communicate, easy to demonstrate, easy to use, like one of the trends we see that is sort of a negative trend is people are over-appifying everything. Like, mm. does it really need an app? Yeah. Does it really? <laughs> you know? Like, put, put that's yourself a, That's in the a page. good word, that's over-apping. A... <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I made that up. <laughs> Trademark that, copyright that. <laughs> a lot of people, they get so excited about the product. You know, they got a product. Yes, I got a product. I'm going to be a billionaire because I have this great product. But what percentage of people that come to you with a product understand the business of entrepreneurship, understand how to build a business? I would say probably about a third have an idea of what they're going to get into. It's certainly not the majority. And I'm pretty charitable about that because what the heck did I know? Even with, you know, I have a fairly deep experience in entrepreneurship, but I I was hired into startups. And when you start one, it's really different. You know, you're doing everything from emptying the trash and negotiating, you know, your articles of incorporation and stuff you don't know how to do day one. I mean, I'm I'm talking, those are two day one activities. You know, let's get incorporated, like, and empty the trash. Um, (laughs) So... It's, so you uh, so you help is, you help these entrepreneurs build their business and build their brand, as well as get their primarily product to market. The, the, la- the primarily the latter. We definitely do provide a counseling uh, assistance okay. role to these businesses because we have a hundred people. They've seen a lot. You know, I'm standing next to our accounting um, department, and they actually sometimes have to teach people what an invoice is. Like, hey, you have to bill us. <laughs> you know. So there can be some really basic lessons and others, you know, certainly eventually they're all going to be working in more sophisticated areas, new areas. Um, so we definitely play that role and there are certain areas where it can be super effective, like let's say pricing, how to price your product. We've seen a lot and pricing is way more about what the value is to the customer than to your than your cost. Good, like, good point. You have to start with the value. Good point. The cost matters. One, one of your rules too is that you want to make sure that you make a profit on a profit on every single unit. Yes. Once you get to scale, that wouldn't be possible in your you know very first production right, where right. you usually are overpaying. But the rule of thumb I look for is if you can see at scale that the cost of your product is no more than one fifth of its ultimate price at retail, you probably are going to have enough margin to do everything else you need to do. And I mean the cost including packaging. So everything else you need to do includes marketing, includes paying, if you sell at retail, paying a retailer their margin because they have space and lights and employees or even a website has costs to carry your product, a lot of costs. I mean, we have 100 people. These people are all working and getting paid and so, you know, People help you need to get paid, too. Um, so one-fifth is a really good rule of thumb. And I do find people get a little bit uh, misled because they'll start selling directly or on their own website. And sure, the margins are great when you're selling directly and you aren't necessarily doing a heck of a lot of marketing or anything expensive, but that's not representative of how you'll, long, over the long haul, need right, to succeed. Right, right. Excellent, excellent. Once again, I'm talking to Jules Pieri. She's the co-founder and CEO of The Gromit, which has launched more than 3,000 consumer products since its inception in 2008. I call her the champion of the underdog inventor entrepreneur. 
Um, she is also the author of a book just came out in April, How We Make Stuff Now, Turn Ideas into Products that Build Successful Businesses. And her website is thegromit.com. And when we come back, there's a ton of things I want to talk to you about, Jules. Um, talk about how to raise capital. And I also want to talk about, this is something very interesting you say, that why you should be wary of selling your product on Amazon. You're listening to The Rich Dad Radio Show with Robert Kiyosaki. What is your number one expense in life? Your number one expense, it's taxes. And I've asked the question is, how come there's no financial education in school, but why isn't there education on taxes either? You know, they tell you to save money, which is stupid. They tell you to invest in the stock market, which is stupid. But what they teach you about taxes? So here at Rich Dad Advisor, Tom Wheelwright, we're talking about his revision for his book, Tax-Free Wealth. Welcome, Tom. Thanks, Robert. So what's the Tax-Free Wealth about? What, what's different this time? It's a rev revised edition. Well, so what we did was, is we this is the first major tax reform we've had in 30 years, 2017. Right. Was 86 was the last one. 86 was the last one, right. back when I was in Washington, D.C. So many guys got wiped out because of that tax change. <laughs> they did. They yeah. did. It wiped out an entire industry, savings and loans. This new tax law is just as big, but in a very different way. It affects different industries. You know, the tax law is always a series of incentives. And the question is always which incentives and which ones apply to me. And so the, the key to revising tax-free wealth was what is it, what changed so much in this new tax law that we can absolutely take advantage of, I mean, seriously, the amazing incentives. For example, I mean, the bonus depreciation, for example, for real estate is unbelievable. You buy a, a, a million dollar apartment, get a $300,000 reduction or more the very first year. So if you want to make more money and pay less taxes like Donald Trump and myself, get Tom's book, Tax-Free Wealth. Don't be like Charlie. Charlie is that do-it-yourselfer who does himself in. Do-it-yourself is good for tile and grout. It is not good for asset protection. Charlie thought he'd save a few dollars forming his LLC online. With no guidance, he did it wrong. When he sold the property, he lost thousands and thousands of dollars. He did himself in by trying to do it himself. Don't burn yourself. Use Corporate Direct to set up and maintain your LLCs and corporations. Corporate Direct is owned and operated by attorney and rich dad advisor, Garrett Sutton. Garrett wrote the bestsellers, Loopholes of Real Estate and Start Your Own Corporation. He is Robert Kiyosaki's attorney for asset protection. He and his team will do it right. Visit them at CorporateDirect.com or call 800-600-1760. Mention Rich Dad and receive $100 off your formation fee. That's CorporateDirect.com. CorporateDirect.com. Log on to RichDadRadio.com while you listen. Now back to Robert Kiyosaki. Hello and welcome back to the Rich Dad Radio Show, the good news and bad news about money. I'm Kim Kiyosaki and I'm hosting today's show as Robert is out on a speaking event. You can listen to the Rich Dad Radio Show anytime, anywhere on iTunes or Android, and you can hear podcasts. Just go to richdadradio.com. Our guest today is a very special guest, Jules Pieri. She is the co-founder and CEO of The Gromit. If you have a product that you would like to get to market, go to thegromit.com and check them out because that's what she does. She's brought more than 3,000 consumer products to market since 2008, she wants the independent entrepreneur to, which I also believe, the independent entrepreneur I see as the kind of the way the economy needs to go. We need more and more entrepreneurial 
mindsets and more entrepreneurs out there making a difference in this world. And that is what she's contributing to. And that's why I'm so excited to have you on the show, Jules. Thanks for having me. It's so fun. Hey, you know, I did want to say something about yeah. that, where the economy's going. There, there's a, there are a lot of cool stats just showing up. One of them, grocery. This is an area where small brands are kicking butt. Really? They took, yeah, who would know this? I didn't know this until recently. 19% market share over the last six years has moved from big brands to small brands in food. Food, like pe- stuff you put in your body, like people are choosing to trust these little guys over the known quantity brands. And that's a good sign for all products. I think that is. I think that is. We're seeing more and more independent bookstores coming up instead of... 11% year-over-year growth for the last five years. Actually, they've doubled since 2009, independent bookstores. Fantastic. Fantastic. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, one, one subject that everybody's interested in is how do you raise money for your business? And how do you yes. raise capital? I know you went you went knocking on venture capitalist doors, um, but you have a, a yes. story as well as how you got started. Well, I started the way a lot of people would start, which is with friends and family. And in my case, it was friends because I sure as heck don't have that, that family. <laughs> but I have the friends. And I, I think it's really important because it's, a, it's an intimidating thing to, to ask for money. And it yes. becomes really loaded when you ask it from people you know. So I have a couple of rules of thumbs. First of all, you should never take anybody's investment if, if it's not something they could lose with without pain. Like never. I turned down a couple investments where people I think were trying to help me out, but I I thought I thought the burden of that investment would be higher than the benefit. Where you know they would miss that ten thousand. That's a great rule. More than that's a great rule so because if you're gonna if number you're, one. Yeah, if you're gonna take somebody's money as an as investment money, you've got to be super responsible for that money that they get it back and get it back with a good return. That's not something we yes. ever take lightly. Yes. So that's rule number, number one. Two, yep. I think um, number two. I think you have to look every one of them in the eye, and I did this with my all of my initial investors. And I said, look, I'm going to work as hard as a a human being possibly can work to deliver you the best investment you ever made. But statistically, odds are I'm going to lose every penny. And that's not my goal. But if that happens, I need to be able to look you in the eye and we could still have a drink or Thanksgiving dinner or whatever it is that we do together I need to know that would be possible because it wouldn't be worth it to me to lose this relationship over an investment. And you and you watch their behavior, and mm-hmm. you know usually people you know say yes because they're big boys and girls. But if they can't say that, or you see any kind of squirming, I, I just would stay away because here's the thing: you are going to carry the burden of responsibility for this investment. You should work as hard as you possibly can, but you can't carry the double burden of their discomfort or fear or risk. You just cannot. And so you've got to take that off the table and say, this is a risk. I'm acknowledging it. I need you to acknowledge it too. Very good. We actually did that on a company we were raising money for. um, And we told the group and they were all very excited and they're all very enthusiastic. And we said, you know, you could lose this money and you need to know that. And that kind of woke people up to the romance of it versus the reality of it. Yes. And people then yes. were able to make their own decisions. Like you said, they're big boys and girls. So I will that- say this, though. When I first ra- I did all that, raised, raised money, I collected checks, and I put them in a file and didn't cash the first checks that I 
raised, and I was feeling a little paralyzed, having still done all that. I still felt a little paralyzed. And a venture capital friend of mine said, get over it, Jules. Here's the deal. I lose money every single day. This, ha- this is part of the deal when you're an investor. And as long as I know somebody has done their best and really done everything they could, I don't lose sleep over it. And that got me going. Like, I, I ran to the bank with the checks, and I'd cash the checks. I started going. I needed a little bit one final kick in the butt. Like, it's okay. Go. So I'm giving that to your listeners. It's Good. okay. Go. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. And you're, you're saying it's not, it, it's in this environment, it's a little tough to raise money from traditional places, but you like, you like crowdfunding. I do. It's been such a gift to this segment. We started a little bit before crowdfunding existed and it was so much harder, but there, the two platforms, the primary ones are Kickstarter and Indiegogo, and they have two huge benefits. In a product um, like our companies invent, you're really able to get a loan against your first run of inventory, your first manufacturing run. And that's very hard to achieve anywhere else. And it's a fantastic thing. I think of it as a loan against that, that production. And the second thing they're really great for is they they create and cause a lot of uh, healthy discipline on the form of these companies because it is a mini and demanding marketing campaign and it does create operational demands on the company. You have to ship these things. You, 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 know, you have to run a mini business for the time that you're running a campaign. So for me, it's a bit of a, um, a little bit of a proof point or a proving ground for these companies. And, you know, if you don't like doing that, you're probably not going to like doing the business yeah. because it's going to be a lot harder than a Kickstarter. So campaign. it's almost like a like a beta test for your product. It is See, a beta test. Not just for the test. product, but for you as an entrepreneur. I think it's more for that than yeah. even the product because the, um, the market read isn't perfect. The reason it's not perfect is that the population on Kickstarter is way more cutting edge than the average consumer. They are interested in, you know, they, they will take more risk. And the other reason it's not a perfect um, read is that almost always the product offers are discounted, so the price is not representative of what you will charge in the future. So price is really important. You know, something that's really, really worth $30 or needs to cost $30, if you're charging $20, you don't really have a good market read how, on it. How, how, how best to test the price? How do you test the price? I would say one of the playbook uh, things I see, I, I, I'm an entrepreneur in residence at Harvard Business School, and the students there, that they'll run a $500 Instagram campaign um, even before they have the product. They'll send the traffic to a landing page, which really just promises the product. Okay. And they're testing responses to whatever it is, colors, styles, prices. And, and they're not fooling anyone. They're not pretending the product exists. They will say, hey, give us your email. We'll let you know when it's actually real. But that they're using that for market research. And anybody could do you that. You can also... Anybody could do that. Anybody could do that. Anybody could do that. You can also... Um, I have a story in in the book um, about Joelle Mertz. She created a product called Buttery, which is a flip-top butter cover for your counter so you can keep your butter room temperature. And that's kind of a fresh idea that people don't realize that's actually healthy or, or, or sanitary to do. It's safe, rather, to do. And she wanted to know if people would believe her. She wanted to know what colors they like, what prices they, they would respond to. So... Here's how she does her market research. It cracks me up. She buys the cheapest ticket she can. She lives in LA, in LA. She goes to LAX, buys like a spirit, you know, $49 ticket. 
goes past security and goes from gate to gate with a stack of clipboards and a prototype of her product. She doesn't reveal she is the entrepreneur because you won't get honest answers. They need People need to think she's a market research lady. And she just, you know, finds out whatever she needs to find, whatever her problem of the month is. So for $49, she gets what would <laughs> cost you know, tens goes, of thousands. <laughs> that's of a great idea. <laughs> yeah. Feel that idea. It's a great one. <laughs> you know, something else that you say that I, I, I like to, and because I see this all the time when we call it analysis paralysis, is people want to make sure that their product is perfect before it goes to the market. They want to make sure everything, every single thing is just perfect so they never even launch their product. They spend all their time yeah. planning it, fine-tuning it, redesigning it, but it never makes it to product, or never makes it to launch. Yeah, there's a yin and yang there because on one hand, prototyping as many times and as quickly as possible is super healthy. And as long as you stay in inexpensive, fast methods like, Literally, cardboard, foam, clay, drawings, you know, not CAD drawings, not necessarily 3D printed right away. If you, if you spend time there, I think that's healthy. I think, you, you know, the prototypes are like truth serum. When people look at them, they see things that they wouldn't understand from words or sometimes even drawings. So that cycle is a good cycle to stay in. But as you said, the sort of other end of it where you're really at perfection mode, um, not so healthy. Yeah, yes, yes. And let, let me talk about, before we get to Amazon, um, You, one of your products was Fitbit that you took to market. Yes. You you weren't crazy about Fitbit in the very beginning. Why, why was that and what changed your mind to where you embraced it and took it to the market? Well, there were two problems. The first one was it really wasn't ready for prime time when we first saw it. It was buggy and... You have to sort of go in the way back machine in 2000 and I think it was 10 when we first saw it. We'd never seen a, a product where you could have data on your wrists like that, that you mm. could share data with a manufacturer, with your phone, with your friends. And so we had to wrap our minds around this, like, possibility in the world. So when it was buggy, it was hard to tell if it was user error or it was the product. And it, it was probably a bit of both, but until we're sure it's working, it can't be launched. So we had to sit on it until they had fixed it. I'd say the other thing um, was it's not uncommon for uh, a, a young company to, to be a, an operational shit show, but it was a bad one. <laughs> they just weren't delivering, and that was expensive. And I remember personally at the holiday in 2011 getting on the phone with the founder and saying, like, James, you cannot do this to me. You know, it's the guy who took the company public. You cannot do this to my customers. They're, so they were buying but not delivering? Yes. So not that, okay. That's a, huge, that's a huge piece. I mean, that can be um, kind of the curse of success whereby your product is a huge hit, but if you can't deliver, you're out of business. Yeah, and, and what was happening in, or what happens sometimes is, um, I don't know, if, I'm not saying it happened with Fitbit, but sometimes sort of a new shiny account shows up and you might have made commitments to say a bunch of small independent retailers and then you know the big national chain says hey I'm in and and small makers don't understand you know what put those big guys on ice handle the people who were there for you in the beginning because the big guys will wait you know if your product is so great now it'll be so great in two months or whenever your next shipment is but don't screw the little guys who helped you or the early customers. Like, always take care of them. Is that what you did with Fitbit? Um, 
we we figured it out. Yeah, we got there. But it, it you know we, we're we're a company that gets on the phone with people. We you know we have real relationships with our makers, and it's not an arm's length relationship. So we figured it out. Yeah, you know a lot of what what I hear and I, I like like the like the woman who does her market research at the airports. Everybody thinks it's such a digital world, and everything has to be online. You have to do all your market research online. You have to go on. You have to be digital in order to succeed today, and it's a big part of it. Granted, but a lot of your Success seems to come from, as you say, relationships, getting out, talking to people, not kind of almost the old fashioned way. Well, it's it's so strange to me, Kim, that being human and telling the truth and being trustworthy is distinctive. Because, you <laughs> that's know, a, that's, that's a sad stuff. That's a sad line. <laughs> well, I mean, here's the deal. That's exactly what a local independent retailer would be normally, right? right? And and we do do it digitally, to be fair. We do deliver what we do digitally. So we do it at a larger scale uh, in, you know, kind of our core way we operate on a website. But we try to kind of create those human connections. Our faces are on the videos. We have video with every product. And I read every comment personally that we get from our daily customer survey. So we do have a digital way of communicating. Mm-hmm. But I have, but I care. You yeah. know, I'm, these are not like anonymous things, and and we collectively care. And it's, you know, marketplaces and much of retail, the larger guys, it is pretty arm's length. Uh, you know, on a marketplace, the the company, I mean, like a Wayfair or an Amazon, they wouldn't ever see the product. They wouldn't have ever touched it. Right. So. Right. You know, how could how could they extend their reputation or trust to it? That's not their promise to you, but it is our promise. Yeah. Well, it's a, I, I think it's the key to business is relationships and keeping those relationships strong. Let, let's uh, let's go to Amazon. Let's because everybody loves Amazon. Amazon's like the pretty, pretty guy out there, girl out there that everybody wants to be a part of. And you say, be wary. And Amazon is actually can be a risk. What happened? Yes. Why? So what you said is absolutely true. Like, what's not to love? You know, great selection. It's fair pricing, and you know the product's going to show up. Amazon really looks out for that customer in terms of the operational side of the business, for sure. They're masters at it. I have mad respect for them. But what happened was that Amazon has become a sea of counterfeits and fake products and fake reviews for one really simple reason, which is in 2015, Jeff Bezos was more interested in studying his Chinese competitor, Alibaba, than anything else, and he wanted Chinese suppliers on the platform. So he removed the rule that required every supplier to have a domestic representative, almost like a speed bump that used to exist. Took that away. So 25% of what's on Amazon now is coming in the U.S., is coming directly from a Chinese factory. And these are not companies that built a brand or have their own intellectual property. They study, because Amazon publishes so much data, what's selling on Amazon and knock it off. Sometimes it's a copycat and sometimes it's a direct counterfeit. There's a difference. A a counterfeit uses the brand name of the original company, uses their photos, they even... Um, have figured out how to list their listings and reviews and and pixel for pixel steal their Amazon listing. So you can go buy this product. You go buy that buttery that I mentioned or any product, you know, Fitbit or whatever, and you think you're getting the original one because it's under the brand name that you want. 
It's not. It's a fake product, and it's sold at a lower price, so you think you're getting a great deal. Um, that's how they win the top listing, but it's not the same product. And you're mad at the, you know, you're mad at Fitbit. You're mad at Buttery. You're mad at the company you thought you bought from. You're not even mad at Amazon because you thought the company, you know, was shady, mm. not Amazon. But it's Amazon that created that situation. This wasn't possible in a world of retail normal retail because normal retailers don't sell counterfeits you know they they vet their vendors yeah you know it's interesting when we first had our our first chinese publisher we <laughs> robert was signing a book in australia and it was a chinese book and he goes oh this is the first chinese book i've ever signed of rich dad poor dad and i looked at it and i went robert that's not ours. <laughs> and we found oh. out our own publisher had one legit copy going out the front and five counterfeit going out the back. So I understand what you're saying. And you know what else with Amazon, because we experience this at, at our company, they have more data about who's buying the product, what's selling best, what's not selling best. But we don't get access to all that information. So they have a ton of information. Are they also using this information for their own benefit and their own products? Yeah, what they do is um, now they have a very vibrant private label business. So they see, hey, look, you know, Kim's product is really rocking. Let's make our own version of that. And so they, they have a lot of brands that, you know, you don't know they're Amazon because they're, you know, a name Other like different names. Know, Beaver, Beaver Row or whatever. You know, like it's not clear it's an Amazon brand they're, and they sell those private label copycats under that, those names. So, yes, they it's it's unprecedented. It's very very unusual yeah, in the world for one company to control all that information and access to customers and be the supplier, you know, competing with their own suppliers. Yeah. And there's it's unprecedented. there's a, it's re- There's a lot of thing there's a lot of businesses out there teaching people how to sell on Amazon and it seems so easy. It's such an easy way to get your product out there. So if it's not Amazon, where do you go? How do you how do you get your product out there if not Amazon? Well, I think traditional retail sellers still are incredibly important and um, 90% of actual retail is still bricks and mortar. So let's not overlook that as well. And most of our makers have a pretty vibrant website of their own and Instagram can be one of their best friends for getting the word out. It's a wonderful platform for independent brands. And I would look at even um, even other marketplaces are a little more credible, whether it's um, a lot of retailers are starting to sort of tack a marketplace onto their their existing offering. We have a partnership with Ace Hardware, and they love supporting the little guy. They love supporting independent companies. And, you know, you can work with them online or in their own 5,000 stores. So there, there are still lots of great options out there, and, and I I really think it's much healthier in any business not to have just one customer or one large customer. Right, right. You know, that's a business 101. So even if you want to be on Amazon, I would mitigate that risk um, by having a diversity of suppliers. And, and the trick there is to make sure that what you have on Amazon doesn't, um, the price doesn't get ruined. Um, and the best way to do that is have your own marketplace there, your own storefront on Amazon. Don't sell to Amazon directly because their prices are algorithmic. They don't, you know, they're not trying to sort of be matched to the market price. They're adjusting them automatically. And so if your price in the market, say, is $100 for a product and Amazon's algorithm one day decides it's $90, well, that becomes the de facto market price. You just lost 10% on your price permanently. 
Well, Jules, thank you so much for being on the program. There's so many more questions I could ask, but I'm going to recommend people go out there and buy your book, How We Make Stuff Now, Turn Ideas into Products that Build Successful Businesses. Jules Pieri, she's a co-founder and CEO of The Gromit, and her website is thegromit, G-R-O-M-M-E-T dot com, thegromit.com. Jules, thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you for creating all these wonderful entrepreneurs and supporting, as I, as I call it, the underdog and the independents out there. I think your work is invaluable, and I have the greatest of admiration for you. So keep up the good work. Thanks so much, Kim. Oh, thank you. And when we come back, we're going to go into Ask Kim. You're listening to The Rich Dad Radio Show with Robert Kiyosaki. Don't be like Charlie. Charlie is that do-it-yourselfer who does himself in. Do-it-yourself is good for tile and grout. It is not good for asset protection. Charlie thought he'd save a few dollars forming his LLC online. With no guidance, he did it wrong. When he sold the property, he lost thousands and thousands of dollars. He did himself in by trying to do it himself. Don't burn yourself. Use Corporate Direct to set up and maintain your LLCs and corporations. Corporate Direct is owned and operated by attorney and rich dad advisor, Garrett Sutton. Garrett wrote the bestsellers, Loopholes of Real Estate and Start Your Own Corporation. He is Robert Kiyosaki's attorney for asset protection. He and his team will do it right. Visit them at CorporateDirect.com or call 800-600-1760. Mention Rich Dad and receive $100 off your formation fee. That's CorporateDirect.com. CorporateDirect.com. Financial freedom begins with financial education. Now back to Robert Kiyosaki and the Rich Dad Radio Show. Welcome back to the Rich Dad Radio Show, the good news and the bad news about money. I'm Kim Kiyosaki, and we have been speaking with Jules Pieri. What a great, great book she's got, How We Make Stuff Now, Turn Ideas into Products that Build Successful Businesses. If you have a product, if you're launching a product, if you've launched a product, get her book because it is filled with all types of gems. I mean, everything from packaging to distribution to cash flow, all of it in this book. So highly recommend it. You know, we didn't even touch on a lot of the points that she said, but one of the things she said in the very beginning, she says that you have to decide from the very start, what do you stand for and put it in stone? Basically put it in writing. What do you stand for? What are your values? And make sure you stay true to your values because as we've seen, Many businesses, as they grow and they get more and more profitable, some of those values go out the door. So decide on what you stand for and put it in stone. So again, thank you, Jules Pieri. Appreciate your insight. Appreciate the gift that you're giving all of us. So now we're going to go into Ask Kim, as Robert is not here today. You can submit your questions to askrobert or askkim at richdadradio.com. And again, we archive all of our programs so that you and your family and your friends can go back and listen to the programs again and again, because oftentimes where you are today is someplace where you were not last year, and you may hear new things, new information that may help you accelerate your own journey. So please listen at richdadradio.com. Melissa, what is our first question? Our first question today, Kim, comes from Audra in Round Rock, Texas. I know Round Rock. Yeah, favorite book, Rich Woman. Oh, how thank you very much, Audra. She says, Kim, my sister and I are thinking about starting a business together. We're studying, we vetted the viability of our product and taken other steps. My question is, what do you feel are the top two pitfalls that first-time business owners will face? 
Our goal is to anticipate the problems and have a plan in place before we start. Okay, good question, Audra. Well, congratulations on doing all the work getting ready to launch. But I'm going to tell you one little secret is you're never going to be able to anticipate all the pitfalls because you're going to come up against a lot of pitfalls. But that's the beauty of entrepreneurship. One thing you've got to get comfortable with at some point is being comfortable making mistakes because that's how you're going to learn. So just know it sounds like you're kind of afraid of getting getting started because you don't want to make a mistake. Well, just know you're going to make a lot of mistakes and every mistake you make if you learn from it, take the lesson because a mistake just shows you something you didn't know. Take the lesson and apply it to the business. The business is going to get is going to grow more, it's going to become more successful. So just know that you're not going to anticipate every problem because you've never been here before. It's a new thing for you. So it's exciting, but it's actually the fast track to personal development, I believe, is entrepreneurship. Because with every mistake you're going to learn, you're going to grow. The second thing I would say is make sure you're paying attention to the bottom line. You know, we are Rich Dad, Poor Dad. We're all about cash flow. And as Jules Pierre said, she wants to make sure that you make a profit with every single unit you sell. So be really, really honest about what the product costs, what goes into it, including PR, including marketing. What does that product cost? And make sure that you're making a profit. Make sure you've got positive cash flow. Maybe not in the very beginning, but have a plan in place so that that cash flow is coming because a business can only survive as long as it's making money. So thank you, Audra. Next question, Melissa. Our next question comes from Kellen in Indiana. Favorite book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. says, I'm one year into running my online business. As with most startups, there are good days and bad. My question is, how do you and Robert navigate your bad days in business? And what, if anything, do you do when you have an exceptionally good business day? (laughs) Let's see. Every day we have a bad day and a good day. (laughs) Every day is good and bad. (laughs) Every day is good and bad. Uh, Yeah, it kind of goes back to the same thing with Audra is that, you know, a bad day is like, what what did you learn? I mean, at the end of the day, we do, Robert and I would often sit down and go, okay, so what happened? today? Why did this happen? What did we learn? What do we need to do differently? So the bad days, actually, I don't look at as bad days anymore because every step along the way is getting me more successful. I'm growing from it. I'm learning from it. You know, as I said, Robert's at a seminar right now as a student because we want to keep learning. So the bad days, you just, you know, one of the keys to being an entrepreneur, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you got to have that that resilience. You've got to be able to, you know, come back from a setback. And if you don't have that, maybe entrepreneurship isn't for you. But just know you're going to have good days and bad days. But the bad days sometimes can turn into some of the best days because they're going to have the biggest lessons and the biggest learnings. So I look back on some of the horrendous things that we've been through in our business. And looking back, it's the best thing that could have happened because had that not happened, we wouldn't be where we are today. And with the good days and with all the wins, always celebrate your wins. We love to celebrate our wins. So celebrate the wins, but also celebrate the lessons that you learn along the way. So thank you, Kellen, for the question. And again, you can submit your questions to Ask Robert or Ask Kim at richdadradio.com. Again, I want to thank Jules Pieri, the co-founder of Gromit. She is really the champion for the small and independent entrepreneurs getting their products to market. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.